0: Those insights are so big. Like imagine in soccer, you ha- have athletes that are injured, like somebody having a sprained ankle, and you as a coach didn't know it. So you put them in the starting 11. Like that's <laughs> that's fucked for the team. And it feels like in the hospitality industry, with, with all these uh, bravado and the, the head chefs not opening up for a two-way street communication, people feel afraid to talk about these issues, which, again, if we make the steel man, sucks for you if you care about performance, because then you will have a shitty chef or a shittier chef, which you don't know about, and then you will put pressure on him eventually or inevitably, and then you will have a shit dish. And you could have solved that if you were to have better communication.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Burnt Chef Journal, hosted by myself, Chris Hall, the founder of the Burnt Chef Project. This week's guest I'm incredibly, incredibly excited to introduce you to. His name is Geor Svensson, and he is a sports performance psychologist. He joins us to talk about so many different subjects, talking about performance within teams, talking about mindsets, talking about development, effective communication, language, This is packed full of information for both managers of teams within hospitality and also individuals. No matter where you are in the world, there are some takeaway points from this episode. So I really do hope that you enjoy this. Following on from this conversation, Joanne has very kindly agreed to do a free group session for an hour and a half on Friday the 2nd of July, whereby we're hosting a select number of people talking about the subject of motivation and we'll do an hour and a half workshop with him so for more information about that please head over to our website uh, and also over to our social media channels at the burnt chef project on instagram and facebook and you'll find more information and links on how to get involved there without further ado let's crack on with this week's episode Lanwester, your partner in potatoes. We're a leading global frozen potato manufacturing business with a wealth of experience in offering a portfolio of high-end and quality products on a consistent basis. We supply the pub, casual dining, QSR sectors. We believe in well-being free potatoes, and we are very proud to support the Burn Chef Project.
0: Here to offer our support and help for those that need it, and any solutions that you need for you and your business.
1: Hi. Hi, Jor, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? Very well, thank you, very well. Glad, to, awesome. uh, glad you can join me, sir. Yeah, I'm
0: glad to be joining.
1: Jor, if if I could just ask you just to explain to the listeners exactly sort of who you are and uh, what what it is uh, that sort of got you into psych- psych- psychology and your background, please.
0: Yeah, sure. First, my name is Jor, as you heard. And I'm 24 years old, and I'm a sports psychology consultant. I don't know really how I got into psychology. I think I was around 18 and was trying to figure out what I wanted to do after high school. And I knew that I wanted to do something in sports, and I had some thoughts about becoming a personal trainer, and um, I tried to look up, like some program or something at the local university or something I could do to further that goal. And I found psychology, which was then called like sports science or something. And I thought, yeah, that sounds cool. And then the first day of school, our principal said that this isn't a program to become a PT, but I was like, fuck it. I'll go anyways. And then it just, it'll just be what it is. And then as the years progressed, I got more interest in psychology and the way your mindset and the factors maybe outside of the gym can affect performance. So yeah, that's basically how I got into psychology. Amazing.
1: And so you're you're a fully qualified consultant at this moment in time. I see from your website.
0: Yeah, I think in it's different depending on which country you live in. In Sweden, we don't actually have a like a limit or it's not a legal term calling yourself a sports psychology consultant. So anybody can do it. Same goes with sports psychologist. I think in England, you can't call yourself a sports psychologist since it's a protected title. And in Sweden, I know that psychologist is a protected title, but basically the difference is for those who don't know that psychologists and sports psychologists are more concerned with clinical issues. So like real depression, and uh, yeah, I think it's mostly depression, maybe perfectionism, whereas I am more concerned with performance, and the factors behind performance and more of a holistic, yeah holistic perspective. So when it's really bad, you go to a sports psychologist, but when you just want to improve your performance, your stress levels, and learn how to manage sort of things, you go to a sports psychology consultant, usually.
1: Interesting, and in terms of then performance, uh, you know, performance-related issues that come down to psychology. What sort of things are there that that would impact someone's performance, um, whether it's be through sports or through you know occupation? How much time do we got? We have as much time as we need, <laughs> my friend. Go ahead.
0: Uh, yeah, there's so many factors. So it can be anything from performance anxiety, fear, motivation focus emotional regulation yeah perfectionism yeah the list goes on and on and on so there's so many factors
1: amazing and so how do how do you then find exactly what it is uh, which one or which multiple of factors there are that's impacting someone's uh performance in that way
0: I mean, it depends. If I'm working with a team or I'm doing sort of an internship or something like that, sometimes I can just perceive what the issue seems to be because I can observe it myself. And, you know, if I see someone who goes to attempt a skill or something and then they just give up after the first attempt or yell out, fuck, or something, then it's probably an emotional regulation issue or maybe motivation. Sometimes people also come to me with clear issues, like I have issues with motivation or I have uh, issues with uh, pressure performance. And other times people don't really know their issues. So then I try to, or working areas, and then I try to talk with them and see, okay, why are you here? When you're performing, what's usually the weakest link? When you lose, why do you lose? And when it goes well, why do you win? And sort of speaking of that and delving further into the context, you can usually get a pretty good idea of what the issue is. Sometimes the people have totally the wrong thing in mind. Some people say that they're super good at emotional regulation and they have no problem when it's very clear that the opposite is true. But uh, yeah, that's a working area as well. It must be hard with certainly working with uh,
1: people within the sporting industry as well to be able to point out to them perhaps things that their ego won't allow them to touch.
0: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's an issue. And it's very funny when you can, when either you work with a team and you can observe what's happening or you get other accounts. And one guy is like, oh, I have no problem. And everybody else says, yeah, he gets frustrated a lot. And he always yells and cusses and. Sort of that. And then you have to try to think, okay, how can I break break this to this person? And my approach is usually not coming from a perspective where I'm above them since I have an education or or anything like that. I try to make them understand and come to the conclusion themselves. So like if someone I've worked with people that have a, a bad way of giving feedback, I guess you can call it, where they were very abusive. And they didn't see it themselves. They said they saw it as jokes. So I followed a guy around for, I think, one day and just wrote down quotes of what he said. And then I just read them up and said, OK, what do you think about this quote? And then he would be like, maybe the ego came in and no, it was not a big issue. OK, but was everything that you said here optimal or was everything you said here necessary and try to make them think and come to the conclusions instead of saying yeah you're you're being abusive because that usually doesn't work in my opinion it's uh, an interesting point you touched upon um and i
1: it's relatable i think to hospitality in many structures because ultimately i think in hospitality we've got such a vast turnover we've got such a vast industry that we find that there's a bit of a skill well there's a massive skills gap opening up namely where people have left management roles who may have experience and been replaced by someone who perhaps doesn't have experience within management and performance management um just because of age and you know quick progression it often doesn't give us a chance to hone those skills um so things like you know emotional reactions and certain terminology and body language and words that are, that we use within hospitality are perhaps are detrimental to overall team team morale uh team performance but also um mental health and well being as well so i mean how much of uh you know how much of situations like for example the you know the wrong words the the verbal verbal cues that are quite negative impacts
0: overall well-being and and how does that translate
1: into poor performance
0: it's a very interesting question and i think it's all about the context some people are like i guess it depends on a lot of factors like the relationship you have with the person giving the comment some people have a pretty rough dialogue like in england banter is pretty big of what i can understand so if that's the case and people perceive it as banter, I don't see it really as an, as an issue. But other people might not see it as banter and might just see it as abusive. So it's all in in the person who gets the feedback that is like the issue. So a person could be very sensitive. And then even if someone says a comment that isn't that bad, he might perceive it as very bad, which could be then then detrimental to that person's mental health and motivation whereas another person don't really care about validation so he might not even care whatever you say to him so it's very dependent on the context and the person I would say.
1: So how does one navigate that then because I mean what you're talking about is a certain degree of calibration so for an individual to be aware of their impact that they're having on others around them or certain individuals but yeah. How do you navigate this as a, say, for example, you, you know, you're fairly due to a manager role, you're managing a team of five, 10, 15, you know, do you always tread on eggshells or you know, hoping not to, not to upset individuals? Do you, you know, completely change the person that you are in order to be able to try and try to fine line? Like how, how would someone go about doing that?
0: I think the first thing you have to identify is starting with yourself. So let's say that you're a chef you probably have goals. It could be getting Michelin stars or it could just be running a fine establishment. If your goal then is to get, say, Michelin stars, you have to think about, okay, what do I find most important? Is it saying things that feels good or is it saying things that will boost performance and being optimal? And the answer should probably be saying things to be optimal and improve performance because otherwise, (laughs) what are you doing? So, when you've identified that, I think it's easier to to start thinking about when I say these things, do I say it because it's the optimal thing, or am I saying them because I'm angry and just want to like get things off my chest and because it's very easy you know when and it's i i think for people that hasn't done that much reflecting, it's very easy to, to you know get emotional when someone. Maybe overcook something or does something stupid, like uh, cut a carrot wrong or something. Where you think like, oh, this is such an easy thing. Why the fuck aren't you doing it correctly? And then you want to tell them, what the fuck are you doing? Get in the fridge or something for five minutes. But if you think about it, is that the optimal thing for performance? You're just taking out one of your chefs into the fridge for five minutes. So the other guys have to work Over time, you never see in football that someone takes out a player and just lets the rest of the players pick up the slack. So probably not an optimal thing. And if you come from the mindset of I want to do what's optimal, I don't care myself if I get super stressed. If I have to take a lot of shit, all I care about is performance. Then it's easier to make those decisions than if if you don't have a goal and it's kind of wishy-washy. It might sound stupid, but I think it makes a big difference
1: yeah and it's do you know what you've, you've sparked something off in my head something that my uh, rugby coach used to say to me all the time or say to us as a team was that they could train you to be able to play rugby and to use your skill sets to develop your skill sets but once you're on the field you're completely autonomous you're on your own you know yeah. that it, it's their job as a coach to be able to provide you with the skill sets and the resilience and the confidence to be able to execute things whilst you're on the field because they can't they can't intervene. They can't do anything to change it once you step over that line. And that's quite an interesting uh simile, if you like, for for what you've just said, because you know, how many of us within the working environment always have to have that control and pull people away and, you know, divert people away from either A making mistakes or B not spending time with them to be able to build their resilience, hey?
0: Yeah. And then continuing on your point on whether to tread on eggshells or just whatever you want. When you've identified what you want to do, I think it's very important to see each chef and maybe even like each person in the staff as a potential long-working ally or someone that makes a positive impact on the team and try to treat them in a way that you're viewing it long-term instead of short-term. So having conversations with people and trying to understand, okay, I have a chef here, but who is this chef? Is it a person that thrives under pressure? Is it a person that easily gets distracted and frustrated? And does this person like this kind of feedback or does he like this kind of feedback? Say if you got a an excellent chef but has severe self-esteem issues or self-confidence issues, if you're seeing that the chef is having a bad day, it's probably not a good idea to say you're really fucking up because then you would just decrease his self-confidence and him sh- or he will probably perform worse. It's better to say, come on, man, you're a good chef. You can do this. You just need to focus and then maybe have a focus drill or something in mind that he can do that you can practice on and you can perform them very quickly, like a couple of seconds and then get in line. So try to boost him. Whereas you might have a chef that's very arrogant, who is good, but thinks he's the best chef in the world. And he might have to be taken down a notch. He might be like doing five things at the same time because he thinks he can when in reality he can't. So he might need to be taken down a peg. So it's very, yeah, it's very... Context and individual dependent, and I don't really know why. Why there are so many things, or why so many people see it as one solution fits all? Because in, I mean, in cooking, you don't cook everything the same way. It's not like you cook lobsters the same way as uh, filet mignon or something like that. So why why would people be the same, or wouldn't be the same? Yeah,
1: one hundred percent. Well, one thing that I get asked a lot is you know okay so come into the business and and can you sort out mental health issues and can you make us uh, more effective as a a business and i'll be like yeah by all means but this could take months and they're like well do you not have you know with your experience do you not have the answer to be able to fix (laughs) this i'm like (laughs) uh, well firstly as as you said at the beginning of this podcast it depends on so many different factors such as culture such as skill set such as you know what what the individuals are or who the individuals are that work for your business like there's so there's like about 50 different factors that you have to try it could be even just the layout of the kitchen or the temperature of the environment or it could be just one of these stresses that's causing a problem but there's a catalyst to a whole host of other things and this is what i think people need to understand is that you know the subject of well-being mental health and efficiency within the hospitality industry there is no one size fits all, and one thing that works for business A will not work for business B, or one thing that works for person A will not work for pe- person B. It's there's no simple solution, but there is solutions, and and as, you, as well as you do on a daily basis, you find those solutions.
0: Yeah, and I think it's such a weird misconception that people have with the searching for quick solutions. Even if you're like me, a trained person in sports psychology. I can teach people these things in like one day in the same way that a three-star Michelin chef can't come and teach a random guy how to cook at a Michelin level in one day. It's, it's not I who has to master the skills, it's you. And I have to teach you how to do it. And it can take a while. And for some people, it goes very quickly. And some people might be very very ingrained in a certain culture, which I think you've spoken about a lot in the podcast and m- might have an unwillingness to change and have the mindset this has worked in the past, so it's going to work now and everybody's just too mentally weak nowadays. And when I was a chef, I used to work 16 hours and then I worked an extra eight hours at another place or something like that. Whereas, yes, that might be true. And even if you went through that, did you succeed because of that? or? to succeed despite of that it's very easy to conflate the two yeah definitely that's one thing
1: again i hear a lot is that you know back in my day people yeah, people weren't working you know short hours eight hours and you know the youngsters who come into the industry now are asking what time breaks are and how long they get (laughs) and, and and how dare they ask that sort of question and you say to them well that's not that unusual in every other industry. This is something that you you know you're you're required by law to have these times. <laughs> you know, just because you're a martyr and you know you've done it, and times were different back then. This is a new age now, and we need to start looking at how we adapt to this, whilst also being able to you know keep a mind's eye out for our well-being of our staff.
0: Um, yeah. I think it's a interesting philosophical idea, I guess with uh, what you can call order versus chaos, with order is the way that everything usually is. And whereas order is good, because the argument is it has worked in the past, it's easy for it to become too rigid and not really keep up with the times. Whereas when you get new people, like new chefs who want to maybe take a break every hour, that's probably not good. But they also have a way of... Gaining new ideas and new insights, which you can then influence the current order and take what is good and then transform it to something better. Because the new chefs, if you were to let them have it their way, it probably wouldn't work. But if you let the old chefs have it their way, they wouldn't evolve. They would just keep on doing what they've been doing. So you have to kind of mix the two and find a good balance. So not just thinking, oh, these chefs are so dumb and they just whine all the time. Try to think of, okay... They might have a point what could that point be and for new chefs i would say the same thing try to try to take up the mindset of the beginner okay i'm new here this guy has been working maybe 20 years at a top level what can i learn from him and Okay, he might have some ideas, which I think are dumb, but I've been just working here for one year. So maybe there is something he has that I can't see. And let me try to think of what that is, because it's so easy for new people and to be arrogant and just think of, yeah, I know everything. I've been working this for a year, so I know everything. But of course, you don't know everything. So trying to have that beginner mindset, and for those who are not beginners and are excellent chefs, trying to still be open to evolve and progress.
1: Yeah, it's a good point. And it's one that keeps coming up again time and time again on this podcast is that, you know, it's certainly I think with uh, the male chefs more so, but it's, uh, you know, that bravado, that that young 18-year-old, I know everything, you can't teach me anything. And then you get to the age of sort of your mid-30s and you look back and go, Ah, oh, I wish I'd, wish I'd listened and learned more. It's, and uh, it's,
0: uh, it's so easy to have the confirmation bias, you know, and maybe maybe one of those chefs can point To 10 guys in their kitchen with all of those, they survived through this. But yeah, what about the 30 or 50 guys who didn't, who could have become excellent chefs? It's so easy to have like a self-confirming way of looking at things, which uh, the guys who succeed, they're the good ones. And those who don't succeed wouldn't have made it any other way. Whereas (laughs) that's not how science works. You can't just... And uh, as we said before, did they succeed because of it, or did they succeed despite it? So, yeah,
1: Mm -hmm. that's a good point. So you you got in contact with the burnt chef project off of
0: a conversation you had with Sat Baines. Yeah, exactly. And was it was it
1: was that? Have you been working with Sat on on anything in particular? Uh,
0: No, not anything yet. I'm hoping to in the future. It's been yeah, as you know, I don't have to explain with you with Corona. It's been a handful. Here in Sweden, it's pretty calm because every restaurant has been open. Not at full capacity, but not far from it, I think. It's just now that it's starting to go kind of downwards. But yeah, I spoke to him a little bit about sports psychology. And I know you've had him on in the past and he recommended your podcast to get sort of an insight in the chef world. And uh, I haven't talked to him that much, but I see him as kind of an entrepreneur in the field because I know he has hired sports psychology consultants in the past to work with his staff. And I know we also have some maybe radical ideas with, uh, what is it, a four-day work week and then like regular lunches and snacks for the personnel, which I, as someone who comes from sports, see as, yeah, why wouldn't you have snacks for your staff? yeah it's a yeah Uh, he's um
1: he's he i think he works very hard and he's got some fantastic um initiatives that he's put in place and again you know it's it's that four four three working week it cost him a lot of money to put that in place and it works well for for his business model um, and there are a lot of other people out there who it might not work so well for um, because of staffing numbers of costs getting involved. Yep. But he's try- tried to go one step beyond that. And as you say, look at the nutritional aspect, look at, you know, the communal eating. And it still might mean that the staff work hard and, you know, he expects a lot from them. But also at the same time, he's trying to make that balance so that it's not an all way one way street now, which, you know, back 10, 15 years ago within hospitality, it was like, you know, it was just a one way street. Yeah. Uh, where, whereby you turn up and you do what's expected, and then you do more and do more and do more and do more until you're not able to do it anymore, then you have to leave. Um, so yeah, I mean? think
0: uh, I think he's such a good example of what we or yeah what we spoke about before, as someone who is very experienced but is still very open minded and try to adapt new new strategies and not just looking at what has worked in the past, but what will work in the future. Yeah, massively so and I think he's
1: also got a life coach as well he was talking about and it's something that we're yeah. we're in the final throes of putting in place an international life coach network cool uh, yeah because it, do you know what sometimes in life and and I know it's not scientifically proven but in, sometimes in life universe has a weird way of keep throwing things in your path yeah and uh, first couple of times I was hearing about life coaches I was stepping over it I, I wasn't really paying too much attention but the subject matter keeps coming up, and I've heard some really positive feedback from people who have uh, who have had help um, and you know reaffirmed their goals and ambitions through through life coaching. Mm. Um, and I think it's something that could be incredibly useful for uh, perhaps those who find themselves in a stagnant position. Maybe.
0: Yeah, I would just like to add that I'm not sure about the term life coach. I think there's a lot of people. That might be like me who call themselves life coaches and have an academic background, but I don't think it's a protected title. So I would just uh, like to advise you to ensure their academic background to see if they have like a bachelor's degree or a master's. They're not just like a random week course life coach. (laughs) No, I know. we. Yeah, we hear a lot of that. Um,
1: everything that we do here at the Burnt Chef Project has to be sort of uh, certified. So a lot of these people are trained therapists, um, yeah, nice. psychiatrists. Yeah, They've got a background
0: in medical science um, and psychology. And Brilliant. I think to, to add on that, one of my teachers said a thing that has stuck with me for a long time, that as sports psychology consultant... In the beginning, you sort of see yourself as a problem solver or someone who fixes everything. But when you get experience, you sort of shift to seeing yourself as a facilitator, someone who makes things easier and maybe is the catalyst for change. And I think that's such a good mindset to have with like life coaches and everything. Like, I can do magic. I can help you get to the where you're going faster, but I can't make you the greatest chef in the world. Or maybe if you're already like nine, tenths of the way, I can get you there. But I'm not the one who's going to make or break you. You have to do most of the work, but I can facilitate it and make each process easier. And I think that's a common, what you say, red flag when you see people attaching themselves to other success. Let's say if I were were to work with that i could easily say look at me i'm working with a two-star michelin restaurant and it's because of me that they had two stars but he already had that in the past that's not because of me i might have made it easier to sustain it or maybe help them get that third star but it's not because of me it's just because i you know facilitated the process so a good thing to keep in mind i guess yeah no
1: very important it's it's something that's um it's, it's, this particular subject I, I find quite strongly about because ever since the whole reason I got into sales and managing people initially was down to the psychology of it. Hmm. And I found it very interesting that you could, certainly with regards to coaching, when you were coaching and teaching your staff new skill sets, it was never you giving them information on how to do it. It was a case of you giving them the skill sets that they need, but They had to learn themselves. They had to have the aptitude to be able to make mistakes. Hmm. You had to be there to prop them up. But ultimately, it was a lot of like, you know, it's a lot of what I call bums on goalposts, a lot of opening questions like, how are you going to do this? What are the steps you're going to take? Getting people to think about their route to it rather than just being spoon-fed the information because no one's ever going to learn if they're just literally doing a task that they've been told to do. And then you have to
0: think of what the result is that you want. Do you want a person who can follow your instructions or do you want a chef that can think for themselves? Do you want to have to be there every step along the way in the cooking process, or do you want to be able to leave your chefs alone and them to be able to do things? And whereas giving instructions and just giving the answer might be a lot less frustrating and work a lot faster in the beginning, I think in the end, you're going to get the chef that relies on crutches. We can't really think for themselves. So it's a very important process psychologically, I think. Yeah, very much so. True.
1: So I'm intrigued then because obviously you're not from a hospitality background. You listen no. to um, a, a whopping number of podcasts. So thank you for that. <laughs> <Yeah>. Thank you. <laughs> that's, ded- that's dedication. But then I would expect that from a sports psychologist. <laughs> um I guess the question for me, or I'm really intrigued to know, is like from your point of view, having listened to this these these conversations and these stories from individuals, what is it that you see being sort of some of the major hurdles that hospitality has to, to improving their performance and overall well being of, of teams and the industry?
0: Okay, this is interesting because I've done some thinking of this myself and what I personally believe. And then I have Listen to a lot of things on your podcast, which are super obvious red flags for a sports psychology consultant. So starting with what I've heard from your podcast is motivation. There there has been so many examples that you've spoken about that are so bad motivationally that I don't even know where to start. Uh, Like uh, screaming at chefs, uh, belittling chefs, and kind of having the Gordon Ramsay Hell's Kitchen approach, where he used to call people idiot sandwich or whatever, which is, yeah, like we spoke about, it might feel good in the moment and it might be funny on TV, but what are you actually doing to the person? So where I would go from that standpoint is uh, what I talk about in the beginning, but also, also trying to work with the staff, or I would work with the manager or the head chef on how motivation works. So one of the most studied things in sports psychology is motivation. And there's a thing called the self-determination theory. Have you heard of it before? No. Okay. So it basically comes down to that humans have three basic psychological needs, which are competence, relatedness, and autonomy. And when all those three are high, then you get a better quality motivation. So the motivation is more internal, meaning that you do things because you want to and you find them fun or exhilarating or rewarding instead of doing it for external reasons like just uh, just because you have a good pay. I think you spoke about that uh, on a podcast with, I can't remember the chef, but he said that you might be better off taking a lower salary and doing something that is personally rewarding, which like makes you a better chef than taking a job at a random steakhouse and earning a bit more but not evolving anything.
1: Yeah, it's, it's intrinsic and extrinsic value, isn't it? And, yeah. And I might have covered it on previous episodes, but for those who aren't familiar with it, intrinsic values, as, as Jor says, it, it's things that make you – feel good things that make you feel fulfilled that don't necessarily provide monetary rewards or you know ego boosts they're yeah. things that feel like they just feel good like you know working with um soup kitchens or you know putting rubbish picking up a rubbish on the floor and putting it in the bin and it's not your own you know you're not expecting thanks from it you don't want anyone to thank you but ultimately it feels good because it's a good thing to do and then extrinsic values are things like you know faster cars, nicer watches, you know more money. All of these sort of materialistic things that we've actually established over the last sort of fifty years or so don't actually provide us with any benefit to our well-being or to our health.
0: No, um, they're not as, as a sustainable source of motivation as the intrinsically. But it, it's all on a on a spectrum or a continuum. You have like a motivation which is no motivation at all, and then you have Intrinsic motivation, which is doing something because you like it. But on on the spectrum, you have a lot of different stages, like identified motivation, it's called, which is I'm doing something because I can identify with it and it's important for me. So I like to exercise, not because I like actually exercising, but I see myself as a person who exercises and that value fitness. So that's not totally extrinsic but it's not totally intrinsic. So it's sort of in the middle, probably more to intrinsic. And then there is just doing things because you like it. Like maybe playing soccer or something. You don't get money from it. You get a bit of cardio, but probably you don't care. You just like kicking the ball and think it's fun. Which is the most sustainable form. So I would yeah. I would try to consult the head chef or the staff on this and how to create the more intrinsic in line motivation, which is working with autonomies and relatedness and competence. So basically competence is feeling that you're good at something and feeling that you're at least progressing, which is, yeah, yeah, it's kind of a basic concept, but it could be everything from like giving someone positive feedback and setting up clear structures so they know that they're succeeding. Because with cooking, I don't think it ever ends. Like, you never know how to do everything. But if you try to make your chefs have the mindset of, okay, a year ago you couldn't even cook carrots, and now you're cooking carrots excellently. And you didn't know all the pieces of a cow or all the cuts, and now you know, like, 10 or 20 of the cuts. Because it's so easy to just look... Look for everything that you can possibly know when cooking and then feeling like you don't know shit. But if you try to always instill in your chefs that you're actually progressing and maybe having or hopefully having Uh, quantifiable data on that they are improving like now you can cook this dish this dish and this dish I can leave you alone now I couldn't before you know how to do things you don't have to ask me for things so making sure that they're feeling that they're competent or at least that they're involved or evolving it's very important then you have relatedness which is feeling that you have meaningful connections like friends and family and Like feeling that you're a part of a team. So really working on that team spirit. Like it can be everything from learning the chef's names, maybe giving each other nicknames. Maybe that's not a good idea because that could work (laughs) bad as well if they're bad nicknames. But making sure maybe you greet everybody. I know Set have dinners with all of the staff which can sort of also boost that sort of relatedness. So it's not just a random place where you work for eight hours a day. It's actually like a second family or a second pair of friends. It's very important for motivation. And then we yeah. have autonomy as well. But I, I'm guessing that you maybe have some questions before we delve like, in.
1: With... Uh, I Well, firstly, my first question is, You, I'd love for you to work with us in building a short module that provides this in a digestible format for people so we can put it on the Burnt chef academy if you're interested
0: yeah that would be awesome actually i'm very interested perfect thank you so i yeah
1: so my first question with regards to this is motivation of staff in terms of their progression in terms of how they see their career and see themselves as developing and also how they provide additional support and skill sets to the business and I am familiar with this in terms of smart objectives, but I was wondering if that's the sort of thing that you would suggest people implementing, or if there's another structure that you would use in order to be able to provide that that framework to to provide uh, positive encouragement and build people up.
0: Okay, so firstly, I would inform the head chef and the staff on how to like the basic principles of motivation. So that they don't need me anymore that they can do it themselves that they understand how things are working and then in terms of uh, competence i would like to have it very clear so so that the chefs can easily identify that they are improving setting up boundaries and you can do that uh, with goals like taking i work a lot of, in gymnastics and there you have a shit ton of skills i don't even know how many but probably a thousand plus So it's kind of the same concept that you can never come at the best level and learn everything. But I can say to my gymnast, okay, what skills would you like to learn? Maybe this, this and this. Okay, let's say I want you to learn these skills in six months. Is that doable? And then they might say yes. And you can do that with chefs as well, working with goal setting and kind of of what they want to do. And it's obviously tricky because you can be in a situation and and in an environment where they have to like learning three things in a half year isn't enough, but working on that process and having clear, identifiable goals are that's a good start, I think.
1: Are you are you familiar
0: with um, smart objectives, the acronym? Yeah, that's like uh, I think maybe second week in first grade in sports psychology so yeah <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> but sometimes i think i think you know so the hospitality industry in itself generally speaking time is time is just quite short so reviews one to one reviews they might happen in many businesses but they perhaps don't happen regularly or they might happen infrequently which also has such a negative impact on people's well-being because it feels yeah. you know if you miss a review and you don't reschedule it then ultimately it can it can severely detriment the morale and also the uh, efficiency of that member of staff, because suddenly they don't think that you care anymore. Um, But I think where we need to be sort of, uh, and it'll be quite interesting when we continue this conversation off air is that it is building something for those as a basic framework, at least to like, almost like a beginners and an advanced course, really Mm. for those who want the basic format on how to, how to do a review and how to, you know, navigate this conversation because it's very easy to get into a conversation with a member of staff and say, I need you to do this by this date and this is how I want it done. Whereas what you want to do is say, well, this is the goal that we need to get to. How can we get there? What can, you know, what can you do in order to help us get there? And how can I help you with that skill set to be able to 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 reach this goal so we both hit our targets? Yeah. Um, and come to, it has to be that sort of like, It's that age-old thing in management, isn't it? Like, if you tell someone what they want to do, and if you're taking that autonomy away from them, then they aren't really going to be invested into getting it done, so they have to come up with it themselves.
0: Yeah, or it it can at least be. So, which uh, brings us to autonomy, which is the third factor that influences motivation. And uh, what I found in a study that I did on autonomy, which I know that you've read, uh, is that... Like Autonomy is such a tricky thing and I think a lot of people don't really know what it means. And it's basically, or it was defined by Ryan and Desi, I think, as feeling that you're the origin of your decisions or something like that. But that doesn't mean that you have to be the one that comes up with the ideas. If I'm a head chef and I say to you, like, oh, you should cook the carrots that way, you could be like, yeah, that makes total sense and it would make my job so much easier. That's a good decision. And then you would feel autonomous because you want to do it that way. But if you didn't want to do it that way, that would screw with your autonomy. So it doesn't have to be that the person has to come up with the decision themselves as long as they themselves see it as a good decision, if that makes sense. It's the buy-in, yeah. Yeah. It It does. But I, like, I think one thing that a lot of,
1: especially in leadership, if you're not used to working in this way, you tend to, and I know I I felt like this once upon a time before you take that, that you trust yourself with this particular format, but I know that many people out there will probably be thinking, well, I don't want to, don't want to provide that level of autonomy just in case it backfires and
0: they don't want <laughs> to do it and they don't want to work with me. And, yeah. But but I think that's also a misconception about how to work with autonomy. Like giving someone totally free reigns isn't good for autonomy because then like there's too many options and you don't know what to do. That's like a restaurant having you know that some restaurant has like 200 dishes on their menu and you're like, what the fuck am I going to order? You can't really make sense of anything, and that's not good for autonomy. I think what you want is. A well-structured boundaries and then to be able to make good choices in those boundaries so let's say i have a gymnast and i want him to get good at a skill or let's say i want him to get good at free skills i could tell him okay what skill do you want to start with because then he gets to pick and for me it doesn't really matter he could start with which one he wants it doesn't really make a big impact on performance and I could say, okay, I really think we need to focus on this skill. How many attempts do you think that you should do? Because then he has to make a decision within like a well-structured boundary. So he will still feel a bit autonomous. But we will also get to where we want. Because as a head chef or as someone who is more experienced, you know the right answer. He should do a shit ton. But... So just letting him pick freely and he'll be like, yeah, five is probably enough. No, it's not enough. And (laughs) we all know that that's not enough, but maybe setting a bit of a boundary. So I think someone in the line of uh, 10 and 20, what do you think? And maybe he'll like, oh, 15. Okay. If you think 15, then do it. And maybe sometimes you can afford to let them make more decisions. Let's say you think 10 to 20 is optimal and they choose seven, then okay. You can do seven if you want to because that gain in autonomy might be more impactful long term than that like three extra attempts because you have to think if you have a really motivated staff they will work their butt off to do what's necessary to become better and they do it because they want to become better where you're not up their ass and breathing down their neck all the time they're still going to work to become better they might even work at home but if you have if you're up everyone's ass, they might even screw you over just because they dislike you so much and because the motivation is shit. And it probably contributes to the turnover that you've spoken about. The people don't feel motivated and they don't want to work in that environment because they're not autonomy supported. They don't feel relatedness. And when you're called a idiot sandwich and a fuck up, you probably don't feel that competent either. So it's like wrong on every account.
1: It is, yeah. And we're starting to see now with, um, with uh, hospitality in the UK is, is returning back to normal at the time of recording this, which is the um, first week of May. And uh, we're starting to see the sheer volume of people not, not coming back to work from hospitality. Mm. Um, it's quite interesting because a lot of the teams, even the teams who were looking after staff's well-being now, are, are finding that they're short staffed because people have, have had this breakaway um from quite a tough industry um so they're now looking at you know god knows where they've gone to whether it's retail <laughs> or just just changed jobs completely but there is a you know there's a big concern around the number of people in there so you know motivation is is one of the key things i'm really keen to to hear your thoughts on an, any other areas that we as an industry can start to try and address so that we can encourage more people to stay in this industry long term
0: just, just before we go into that, I just want to make a clarification, which I had to do with the coach that I worked with one time, which is we can still push people super hard, but we have to make sure that we're doing it in the most optimal and sustainable way that, they're, that it is they who want to push themselves. So when we're talking about motivation, if someone fucks up, they have to hear that they're fucking up, but you can say it in different ways. You you don't have to be like, oh, you fucked up. You'd be, okay, I don't think this is good enough. I know you can do better, and but this isn't good enough yet. So work on it again or do it again. Maybe think of this this thing and this thing and this thing and try to talk with the individual to find the optimal way to give feedback so that it is maybe... Autonomy supportive or confident supporting when it... I mean, sometimes it's very hard to make it autonomy supportive. Sometimes shit just has to get done. But have to keep it or try to keep it in mind. So you can still push people as much as you want and as much as they need to and you should. But keep in mind that being a chef at the highest level is super exhausting and it's very demanding so try to make it as sustainable as possible and do the best you can because it will make a big difference long term. And just on that note before we move on as well in terms of this sort of
1: feedback you know often in the in the heat of a kitchen or even front of house I mean everything we're discussing is applicable to all of hospitality and, and team team mentality but when would you aim to give this feedback because often enough it's quite a busy environment and you know, during services uh, is is that a good time? Like in the in the moment when the thing goes wrong, uh,
0: it's all about context. So you have to think yourself. Okay, did this person just slip up, and do they know that they slipped up? If that's the case, you probably don't have to tell them. But yeah, I think it's hard to make that because it's so specific. Sometimes you have more time, so you can you can say it. And sometimes it's very simple things, like say it's someone overcooking a thing constant or consistently, you can just say, OK, try to take one minute off the cooking time and I know you can do it or something like that. And it's fast. And sometimes you have to have longer conversations, but doing that in the middle of service is probably not a good idea. I mean, in gymnastic, once someone is doing a routine, I don't stand there and shout, point your toes, point your toes, or you fucked up there, because that's probably not good for for their performance. So you have to think of yourself. And maybe since every head chef has once been in their situation, try to think yourself, what would I like in that situation? Do I know that I fucked up? Yes. Do I need to have it over me for the rest of service? Probably no. But if it is something that impacts performance in the dish, you have to say something. So I think empowering chefs to know the basic concepts of motivation and then making the decisions themselves. Because I will never know as much as a head chef does about cooking, but I know more about motivation. So if I can get them to understand motivation and how to work with it, they'll be able to make the best decisions. And they probably have a very good sense of it already. That's a good point. I've seen,
1: I've just had a flashback to one time when I was learning to manage and uh, I was trying to change the outcome of a situation whilst it was happening. (laughs) And I was was trying to provide constructive criticism and feedback during the course of this interaction with, uh, it happened to be a member of staff and a customer. And uh, yeah, safe to say it blew up in my face. Um, the the individual felt felt incredibly pressured that they just walked away, uh, and that was a big lesson for me to to have learned at that moment in time that uh, sometimes feedback is feedback is good and it's critical to success and it's critical to moving forward, but also at the same time there's a time and a place.
0: And sort of building up on that, I know in gymnastics there are like probably ten things to think about simultaneously at each given task, and let's say if someone fucks up five of them. I can't say that they should think of the five because that's too much. So try to think, try to say what's most important and what's most pressing. Like let's say someone totally overcooked steaks all the time and then they cut the carrot like one millimeter too thick. You're probably better off saying to focus on the steak than the carrot because that will ensure that they put the focus on what is most important instead of just... You know, too many things at the same time, but then everything goes to shit. So, yeah, 100%. 100%.
1: So, just going back then, so motivation is one of the key things that you've identified, but what other things perhaps are, are there that you can, you can point out that might be of benefit?
0: I think the, one of the biggest things, aside from, I would say that motivation is the biggest thing for management, but for the chefs, I would say that the biggest thing would be lifestyle. Hands down, what I've heard with uh, talking to different chefs and on your podcast is that the lifestyle is so fucked; it's like sort of beyond repair almost. I think I see like chefs as sort of athletes because at the highest level, I mean, they train at the same time, probably a lot more. A lot of chefs they have to perform every day, and I mean, chefs can even compete. And I think if you're going for a Michelin star, it's almost like a competition or it's very much the same. But then you have, let's say, these athletes then who work 16 hours a day and then for the rest eight hours, they go out partying, smoking, taking drugs, they eat like shit and they don't sleep. Like, where would you find an athlete like that? There or there doesn't exist on a top level or if they do, they can't do it sustainably, so I would say just fixing your lifestyle, which is something I do as a sports psychology consultant, helping people find structure in their life outside of work because if you don't- if you sleep like shit then you eat like shit and then you also smoke a lot and take drugs, you're going to be broken before you come into the kitchen, and then what the fuck can you do? It's like ordering meat and then you get like 10 soggy, maybe moldy pieces of steak. Like what can you do with those that are already fucked before you touch them? So how do you expect making them like Michelin star steaks? That's such a good point. That's such a good point. And I keep
1: referring to hot being hospitality as like, you know, being a sports professional because your body is being put through, yeah. your body and mind is being put through like such strenuous conditions that if you're not looking after yourself like an athlete does – How are you
0: expected to keep that performance high? Yeah, definitely. So I would would work on first finding what's most important for the chef and then also finding how they are at the moment. So how is your stress levels? How is your emotional regulation? Do you find yourself getting frustrated a lot? Do you find yourself getting tired? What do you do to cope? Do you just press on? Do you take a lot of coffee? Are there warning signs that we can see, but we're not taking into consideration? And what can we do to maximize everything or to make everything optimal? Because as a chef, I think to get good, what it seems like at least, is that you have to work your ass off, which is maybe you maybe you can do like sat and work for four days, maybe five days, or maybe it's six days, but then we have to do the best for the situation. Okay, what can we do outside? You have a fiancé and you have parents that you want to meet, like, um, okay, how many hours a day do we want to spend on those to make you satisfied? Okay, this amount of hours, okay, that that leaves us with, let's say, four hours left a day. Okay, what are you eating in those hours? Well, I don't have time to cook, okay, but... Do we have maybe two hours every Sunday or probably not Sunday, but let's say Monday where we can meal prep for the rest of the week and make maybe not the most nutritious meals, but more nutritious meals and better meals? Yeah, we have that time. Okay, let's do that. And uh, what else? Do you watch Instagram or your phone a lot? Well, fuck, I watch my phone like four hours a day. Okay, that's probably not good. What do you say about uh, half that or maybe taking 30 minutes of that and maybe going for a walk, doing some meditation maybe, or just maybe chilling out and listening to music. Yeah, I can do that probably. And then doing things like that, like working with the individual, finding a good structure which makes high performance not a coincidence but an inevitability and making that sustainable so it's not just, you know, redlining all the time. Yeah, it's about taking control of the other parts
1: of life to to produce a, as you say, a sustainable output, isn't it? Because we don't, we often enough we're habitually falling into these things as well, aren't we? We're just sort of like, you know, we'll come home and we might stay awake until three o'clock in the morning watching TV, and our shift finished three four hours ago, no. or you know, <laughs> we're, we'll, we'll you know, crack open a beer or alcohol at like one o'clock in the morning to help us get to sleep, but uh, actually it's not helping us get to sleep it's impacting our overall well-being isn't it really
0: yeah and i think a lot of people already know this but it's easy for me to say and for us to say but then you might have a chef which has been like shit on the entire day and he's really amped up and emotional when he comes home okay now you should sleep okay how are you going to sleep if you're like if your adrenaline is through the roof and you're emotional. So not just saying what they're supposed to do, but supporting them, giving them the techniques to calm down, working with the head chef so that situation doesn't arise in the first place and sort of helping them to do that. Because it's not easy like going for a walk when you are worked all week and you're super tired. But, you know, so sort of like I talked about in the beginning, facilitating and making every process easier so that it can... So that we can gather a momentum, so everything becomes better with time. And helping people, because it's like just going for a walk and training six times a week isn't that easy. If it was, everybody would be doing it. But it can be, and you don't. It's so easy to have an all-or-nothing mindset. Well, I either have to work out six times a week, or I'm not going to do anything. But like, like I said, if you're eating chips all the time maybe you don't have the time to eat the most nutritious meals, but are there a better brand of chips that you can eat? Are there other snacks that are a bit more healthier? So not looking at it like black and white, but more in the lines of a continuum and moving towards the more positive. Very good point. Yeah, sustainable changes for long-term benefit
1: rather than, you know, we I think we live in a society and a culture of uh, quick fixes, you know it's take this pill this will make you feel better do this <laughs> it'll make it'll make you lose weight whatever it might be but um often enough those things tend to backfire and we end up in a worse position than when we first started so it's about making something that you can commit to long
0: term yeah but i'm opt or i'm optimistic about the hospitality industry because you work like 16 hours a day so you should if someone understands it, you should understand that you have to work hard on some things for it to work yeah yeah <laughs> Def- definitely oh. yeah
1: Definitely. I mean, we're we're looking at we partnered with um, a UK charity called the Drinks Trust, and they're going to provide us with um, sleep a sleep module in order to help people uh, regulate their sleep better uh, and understand more more about their sleep. And then we're starting to tackle these more fundamental questions about nutrition, about sleep, about the benefits of exercise, Um, and you know, motivation as as this you know we've discussed already on this podcast will play a big part in that as well. So I'll be very much looking forward to. To working with you on that and trying to build something that that benefits and benefits the industry and benefits individuals long term, really.
0: And that brings me to to another thing or two other things, uh, which the first one is there's a thing called deliberate practice, which is gaining more attention in the sports psychology world uh, recently, there has been this uh, idea that you have to work 10,000 hours to become good at something, which is totally bullshit. It's actually, if you look at the origin, it's a misquote. There was a study, I think, reviewing how much time professional musicians had played their instrument. and. Then that guy was interviewed and the findings was actually that it varied a lot. I think some did like 4,000 hours, some did 2,000 and some had done 20. And then he just said like, yeah, it's something like 10 hours. And then that became like the headline and it became a thing. But if you think about it, let's take a subject that everybody probably hates in school, which is math. Like you don't become better at math banging your head against the book for 10 hours a day. You have to do it deliberately and trying to understand, okay, why am I doing this? How does this apply and how does it work? So like if if I were to give tips to uh, somebody to become a good chef, Or if you would, I think you wouldn't say cut a carrot for 10 hours a day and then you'd become super good at a carrot. Okay. Speaking realistically, are all those 10 hours the same? Are you doing, do you have the same amount of focus for those 10 hours, the same amount of motivation? So it's easy to just think more is better. But if the performance lessens, so at let's say hour two, you're at 50% performance hour four, you're at 20%, then you're doing fuck all for the rest like hours. So, trying to think of what's optimal. There's a thing, I think it's called the Ringelman effect. Have you heard about it? No. It's uh, I don't know if it came from a study, but I think it did. It's in tug-of-war. And they found that if you got one person pulling on each side, they pull 100% at least close to 100%. If you got two guys on each side, they pull about 90% each. So 180% in total. If you have seven guys or eight guys, maybe they do 70, 60% each. And then if you have five guys, they do 50% each. And then if you do the maths, that's 500%. So you've already lost like five people there. In uh, indifference, if everybody would have done a hundred percent, I hope my math is correct there. But the basic concept (laughs) is that it's like a slacking effect that you know that because or social loafing it's called that because there are other people around, you sort of rely on them to take up the slack.
1: Yeah. So trying,
0: yeah. So trying to have that perspective of just having more people. Yeah, I I guess it's the basic or. uh, Classic idioms, the more chefs make a worse soup or something like that. Too or many it... cooks. Yeah, yeah, too many cooks. It's something else in Swedish, but I know it's... Uh... Yeah, so that concept applies because you you rely on other people and they have done weird experiments where people sit in a room. So they have like five actors and then one real person who sits in a room. And then in the room next to it, there starts appearing smoke. And the actors know it's just fake, so they just sit there. And then they time how long it takes for the real person to move. And in some, I think in some occasion it took like 15 minutes or 30 minutes. And it's not just like a bit of smoke. It's super heavy smoke filling the room. And it's because you just look to other people to make the decision for you. Like, okay, if they're not moving, then I should probably not be moving as well. But trying to think for yourself, like, fuck there's a lot of smoke coming from that room i better shake it out or run because i can die so (laughs) trying to to have that mindset of social loaf loafing and more is not always better
1: yeah it reminds me of a a conformity study that i watched of a i don't know if you've seen it of a lady in um, a doctor's waiting room and when she gets in there's an actor sat on the chair and the actor every time a beep goes off the actor stands up and then sits back down again and after yeah, a few goes, <laughs> after a few goes, this lady starts doing it, and before you know it, lo- the room fills up. She's the only one left in the room, and the beeps going off, and she still stood up and sat down every time. And then all of these new people who aren't actors are starting to follow her. <laughs> it just goes to show, like I think we're we're bred in this, uh, we're bred in society to follow rules and to follow others before us. But um, again, it's it's about creating, I think, an environment and in work, and you know at home or wherever you are where by free thinking is celebrated providing it's, you know, not going against the grain too much.
0: Yeah. And I think it's not as cut and dry as like the Ringelman effect that if there are free people, they just do 70%. But I think trying to have that mindset, like a head chef being as a football manager, as I know Seth has talking about, like, okay, If I want this chef to get good at that task, if I let him do it at eight hours, how good will he be at the end? Okay, probably not as much. So let's say I let him do that for five hours, then maybe a break, uh, one hour break, and then two hours more. And I know a lot of chefs will probably think like, fuck, then I lose an hour. But what if in that break he recovers and do... They work with a hundred percent intensity instead of fifty, and then you've actually gained time because, okay, if you do the math, if you have two hours fifty percent, that's one hour, and or let's say three hours fifty percent, no, no, because that's too hard math. Four hours fifty percent, that's two hours, and let's say he takes a one-hour break and just do two hours, but he does it a hundred percent. Then you have two hours, so it. Turns out to the same amount of effort and the same amount of improvement. So, what would you like then? Would you like your chef to just slave over something eight hours in a row? Or would that, I think one hour is a bit extreme, but would that 15 minute break be better for him? Would he like that more? Probably yes. Probably better for motivation. And if performance is the same, why wouldn't you do it?
1: Yeah. And it brings me on to the subject of presenteeism and the fact that in the industry there's billions—and I mean billions of pounds—wasted a year as a result of presenteeism, which is where individuals aren't uh, exhibiting um, exhibiting illnesses, but are not well enough to be at work. So they're not optimum. They're not they're not performing efficiently because they're not well. Mm. Um, and we've just partnered with a data company, whereby we can actually survey businesses now, and we can survey individuals and find out what their, their state of uh, mental health and physical health is, give them practical tips on how to improve that, but also attribute a cost per person of the fact that there's fires that need putting out, like yeah. you're talking about with your your example. Um, so the business owners for the first time in whatever can start to actually attribute a cost to poor performance as a result of presenteeism or staff not being you know efficient or looking after themselves or, or being looked after so you know actually attributing a cost to well-being and the impacts that that's having on their business so I think it, it changes the dynamics massively of of these sort of conversations and allows people to perhaps you know if they don't understand the reasons why you should look after your staff as assets and well-being then it attributes a price to it.
0: Yeah, and I think it goes in line with what you talked about and the turnover. Let's say you have 10 chefs. If if you invest in like the data company that you talked about and the nutrition help or maybe sports psychology consulting or performance psychology consulting or a life coach or something like that, it might cost a bit in the short term. But what if you can keep seven out of ten of those guys instead of one of ten? What would it cost to try to train up six new people then to make up for the the people that you lost? Well, yeah,
1: I mean, the cost, the cost per person of recruiting. um, So advertising, finding, interviewing, hiring, setting up on payroll, training, wastage, all of those other things is reservedly at least three thousand pounds per person. You know, if you if you look at your business having a hundred members of staff and your turnover turnover rate is seventy five percent, so you only keep hold of twenty five staff per year, then you're basically eating through whatever profit you had, and just burning. Not only are you just sort of not retaining potentially some really you know, talented individuals, but you're also costing your business a a, a significant sum per year. You know.
0: Yeah, and Um, then we're not even talking about the performance. I mean, the new chefs are going to be worse than the chefs you've already trained for a year. I mean, usually at least. So if you have a lot of turnover, then you have to have new chefs, which are probably going to perform worse. And the relatedness is also probably going to be worse, not just for that coach, but also for the team, because there's a new person and everybody has to help him find his role. So the performance will also go down, which can be massive for... Reviews like Michelin, which comes once a year, and then you might be fucked for that year. Mm. When yeah, you great, didn't great have to be. I yeah. always try to think in terms of like making the steel man. Do you know what that means? No. There's a thing called straw man argument, which is you try to take your opponent or the opposing side's argument and make the weakest version of them. So uh, if someone were to maybe strawman what we've talking about is oh oh they just think that you should spend 1 million pounds of motivation here because that will make it better for the business and the strawman is the opposite so trying to make the strongest version of your opposing side's argument and finding flaws in it so Like trying to give people the benefit of a doubt, which in this case is, yeah, it's easy to talk about motivation. It's easy to talk about mental health. But for those chefs who doesn't, who don't care about that, I know they will care about performance. So let's say Mm -hmm. if none of these things that we've talked about are true, but performance is. Or performance is the only thing that matters. Let's say you don't care about your chef's personal health or turnover, but you do care about performance, then you're still wrong because the performance will go down. So like even if we were wrong about everything, like with mental health, you would still be better off choosing our thing because it will be better for performance. So there's no way in which we're not right. If you if you get because it's easy to to just take the like straw man and maybe put too much focus on on just the things which you see as, yeah, it's a no-brainer. But for people who only care about performance, it could also be good to like take that argument and disprove that as well. Like it is better for performance to have this approach because you won't have to train up new people in the kitchen. Like seventy-five percent turnover is crazy. Imagine that for a football team having like three fourths of the team replaced each year that's crazy how how will they perform together and when they found their synergy whoop, then that person is gone like how will you find stability then
1: yeah exactly and this is why i think many businesses uh, are struggling to uh, to recruit one there's you know perhaps there isn't the appetite out there that there once was because of what's happened but also at the same time if you know you've got You know what they say for one positive review one person might say something but for one bad review that person tells 10 people and that's the same with him that's the same with employment that's the same with you know morale and and culture if you say oh i wouldn't work there because i know a mate that worked there and and it's like chinese whispers if they said yeah it's really bad i wouldn't i wouldn't work there again that other person goes, yeah, it's really bad. They, you know, it once had a fire in the kitchen and it set fire to half the stock, or you know, and it's and it just progresses from there. And I think you're right. Whether with respect of whether or not you listen to this this podcast and, and you're branching into this subject for to learn how to look after your staff better, to look after yourself better, to improve your own well to well being, or if it's because you're trying to find the secret secret way of making your business more effective, then This is it, you know, by looking, looking after people, motivating people, uh, making sure that they're mentally and physically as healthy as they can possibly be, you'll have a very successful business. But most importantly, you'll be actually making a positive contribution to people's
0: lives. Yeah, Um, exactly. And then uh, as you spoke about earlier with the other things that I've thought about, which are important for hospitality is I guess more performance or strictly performance-related things like emotional regulation, which um, there's a concept of tilting. Are you familiar with the concept? No. I think it originates in poker, like full tilt poker, there's a thing that's called. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's very big in gaming. And tilting is basically you have one bad thing happening and then you snowball. So you make another mistake and then that gets you more frustrated. So you snowball down a slippery slope or a hill and then everything turns to shit. So it's, um, yeah, you have something bad happening and you can't let go of that. So you focus too much on that, which causes you to mess up other things and then you focus on those and then you mess up more things. So it just goes down. So emotional regulation, would allow you to to know what you're doing and okay i'm getting frustrated how do i solve that or how do i cope with that or handle that and giving the chefs and the personnel the tools to handle that so they don't tilt and make more unnecessary mistakes it's a good
1: point so that that comes as a big part of self-awareness isn't it to know how you're acting and why you're acting in that particular way and but most importantly remove yourself from that situation and take measurable steps to reset.
0: But also giving people the techniques and the skills to be able to do that because it's easy to just say, or everybody that listens will probably agree that, yeah, it's bad to <laughs> to think about negative stuff. But when you do something, let's say you make a very obvious mistake, it can be very hard to let it go, especially if you're having a bad day. And then you're like, oh, I'm trying to let it go, but it won't work and it doesn't work for me. And trying to give them the skills and the tools to actually let it go and be in the present instead, and I think that's something that can be a huge lifesaver. I mean, with uh, like we talked about the Michelin guide. Let's say you have reviewers that comes two times a year. That could be that dish that goes out, and then you're fucked for the year. <laughs> then you have like every dish has to be on point, so you can't really allow one mistake like that. And if the Like if the staff are very good at emotional regulations and techniques like that, it won't become an issue, or it decreases the chances of it becoming an issue. Yeah, because things don't get out of control
1: and snowball. It's uh, easier said than done, though. That hey, it's um, and I I know from personal (laughs) experience, it's you know sometimes it's it's uh, it's difficult to be able to take a step away to 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 begin with, to be able to regulate yourself and to be able to um you know calibrate i guess um but also at the same time it's <laughs> i think you have to go through certain life experiences to become or at least training as as what you do you know to be able to come aware enough to be able to address that particular
0: thing um and i think you know, the the issue is in two parts you can see it from a coach's perspective which is okay i see one of my cooks it looks like he's frustrating. He's having a hard time. Okay, I got to do something to get him to not tilt. And then him to yeah, find a technique and work with the staff well enough that he knows how to handle that. And then also from the chef's perspective, okay, I can feel myself getting more frustrated. I have a, I had a fight with my girlfriend last night and I'm feeling bad. Okay, I'm really on edge. How do I deal with that now? And maybe setting up the environment where, Where a chef can come in and tell the head chef, hey, I'm not doing so well today. I mean, I can still cook and everything, but I had a shitty day, so I would like some support. And if there's time, can I find like one minute to just take a couple of breaths or something like that? Because if I, as the head chef knows that, that's such a huge gain for me because then I know I shouldn't put the pressure on that guy because he will probably not be able to handle it. I shouldn't be as harsh towards him today. I know some techniques because we've worked about this in the past that I can help him with. And, oh, there's a 10-minute break right now. I can just tell him to go out and take a couple of breaths and I can take his station. So those insights are so big. Like imagine in soccer, you have athletes that are injured, like somebody having a sprained ankle. And you as a coach didn't know it. So you put them in the starting eleven. Like that's, <laughs> that's fucked for the team. And it feels like in the hospitality industry with with all this uh, bravado and the, the head chefs not opening up for a two-way street communication, people feel afraid to talk about these issues, which, again, if we make the steel man, sucks for you if you care about performance. Because then you will have a shitty chef or a shittier chef, which you don't know about and then you will put pressure on him eventually or inevitably, and then you will have a shit dish. And you could have solved that if you ha- were to have better communication. But, yeah. So it's not only good for mental health. I mean, strictly performance-wise, it's absolutely massive and key.
1: Yeah, 100%. And it's about building that culture whereby you can actually yeah. you can say that because... You know, I, I still hear it now and throw away comments. Oh, such and such phoned up today. He's going to be late because he's having, you know, <clears throat> he's not feeling well. He's having problems at home. And we we in hospitality, I think, have become a little bit too, um, we find it too easy to look at the negatives. Uh, I think because of the nature of of the work and environment that we're in, I think that sometimes it's easy to go, oh, he's, you know, that person's just, you know, just they're, they're pulling a fast one or they're not capable or something like this. And I think that that's, um, that's something we need to be a bit more conscious of as well i think we need to be able to catch ourselves and this is why journaling is quite useful because it does also enable you to to start to become more aware of your own thought processes and be able to catch yourself when you are slipping yeah. into negative patterns and and you know if you are saying something negative like can you address that can you stop yourself in future can you stop Can you, rather than saying seven negative things in the course of the day, can you say three negative days? And can you get that then to turn around to four positive things about someone or something um, and start to adopt a a tangible long-term change?
0: But I think um... an important thing to add here is that with power comes great responsibility, which in this case means that, okay, let's say you have a very open dialogue. For the staff, this power also comes with a great amount of responsibility, meaning that you can't just, if you have like a tiny issue, you're not supposed to bother the head chef with that. Like, let's say your toe is feeling a bit bad. Well, can you manage it? Yes. Then don't tell your head chef because then he will have more on his plate. So try to think of yourself, okay, can I manage this? Yes. Then I probably don't need help. Okay. If I tell this to my chef, and he might give me a bit uh, or cut a bit of slack. Would that be good for my performance? Yes. Okay. Then I probably should tell him. So have, try to try to think yourself. Okay. Will this help him? Will this help me? Will this help our performance? So you so you're not just complaining about everything because that's not positive, and that will let a head chef who is already more in line with the one-way street give credence to his argument and he'll be like, oh, people just complain. In my days, people didn't complain. And it's much easier to have a one-way street because then people don't just go complaining about random stuff, which that argument has a point. Open communication can lead to people just saying bullshit things just because they have the opportunity. So try to think of like, is this important to say, will this be good for performance? Will this be good for my mental health? If the answer is yes, yes, Yeah, then say it. If the answer is no, then don't, because you have to think if a head chef has 20 people in his staff, you might get, yeah, then you get 5% of the shit possible, but he gets 100% of the shit from everyone. So he gets like (laughs) a shit ton of shit, (laughs) easily said. So you have to think about, yeah, that.
1: Yeah, and it is important. You know, we we often put the onus upon management teams and operational teams to be able to manage the well being of their staff. But you know, the the rates of mental health issues are are recorded as being much higher in middle management because mm. they tend to find that your general manager is giving you grief from the or the owners giving you grief from the top, and in the middle, you know, you're taking it from the bottom as well. So yeah, it's it's a very thank you for bringing that up. It is a very important you know important uh, point of view to to recognize and you know I think also at the same time I think for any managers out there as well like find someone who you can talk to and who you can interact with and can share these burdens and and share best practices for because you know it's it it can be lonely sometimes at the top especially when you have to enforce (laughs) things and and make decisions and you know carry it off with conviction when perhaps you might not necessarily agree with that decision Um, depending on where it's come from.
0: Yeah, and I think that's the thing with head chefs that open communication is good for you as well, because then you can disclose when you're having a bad day. Like, shit, guys, I'm having a super bad day today. Uh, I didn't sleep well. I had to work a lot of extra, so I'm tired today. So can everybody please be a bit understanding? I think I'm going to be a bit more frustrated today. I don't mean anything bad, but... This is what it is today. I'm feeling bad, but I'm going to try to make the best of it. Can you guys support me a bit? And then we'll be like, when he yells, oh, I know that guy is having a bad day. What can I do to make him feel better? That's good. Yeah, Yeah. and then power and vulnerability as well, isn't it really? Yeah, because if if you have established that community and that culture where people just disclose their emotion when it is important and relevant, then the head chef can do that as well. But if you have like a one-way way street where he's just yelling about everybody, everybody will always draw on him, him because they will say, fuck him, he's a piece of shit. They will never try to understand him because he's treating them so bad. But if you have this open communication and open culture, they will they will have enough good days that when the days are bad, they're more inclined to at least think about, okay, why is he bad today? Maybe Maybe it is rough on him which yeah. you would want as a chef, because then they might pick up your slack instead of, okay, he's giving us some time to breathe. I will fuck up now. Or, oh, he's having a bad day. Fuck him. I will just fuck off. Or, you know, something like that because it's so easy to get in that mindset. So establishing that culture. And it's not about, like, cutting people slack for things that you shouldn't. Everybody should turn up on time. If the bus is late or something like that, the bus is late, then... You maybe have to take a better bus in the future. But yeah, I, I think a concept that can be good here is the concept of levels, which I've worked on before, which is establishing different levels for each person or maybe the business in total. So let's say a level one is where everything turns to shit. You're having a super bad day and everything is shit. Okay, what can I still as expect from you today? I should be able to expect that you, would at least at max, come a half an hour late at max. You should at least be able to do basic things like, I don't know, uh, peeling potatoes or stuff like that. You should be able to cook this dish, this dish. And level two might be, I'm having an okay day, okay? Then you should come on time. You should be able to do this, this, this. You should be able to work this long without a break or maybe you just need one break and you should need this and this. Level three is an awesome level. You're invincible today. You turned up on half, on half an hour early. You can pick up the slack for other people in the staff. You can cook this dish and this dish and maybe dishes you didn't even know that you could cook. And you don't even need a break today because you're so so on it. You know, so trying to establish those levels because sometimes people have bad days and things happen that are out of their control. Like if someone, let's say, because I've been through this myself, there's, let's say you have to drive over a bridge and some guy just attempted suicide. So the bridge is held up for an hour. Is that your fault? No, you couldn't have known that probably. And you always take the car and it always works out great. So why as a head chef would I give that person shit for something that was out of their control? It makes no sense. Mm. And maybe he is super tired today, but fuck, he powered through it and showed up today. So what can I do to help him perform? Well, he is at level one, and there are certain things that we have to expect. We can't just like, oh, I was a bit tired today, so I came five, five hours late. That doesn't make sense, and that's not acceptable, but... Let's say 30 minutes is acceptable. And then he might need free breaks. Okay, let's find that room for free breaks. I know Chris over there is on a level one today, so maybe he can pick up his slack. So still being accountable, super important, but trying to make the best out of the situation. And I think what you see if that if you put a good level one and work with the staff and work over time to narrow it in, they will really try to keep it at that. Basic level instead of just giving it all to shit and just staying home or like just stopping trying because then they still have something to reach for, which is attainable. It might be hard, but it is attainable instead of having nothing and trying, you know, you, you know yourself if you're super tired and feeling like shit and trying to perform at the best level, it's just going to go to shit. So, why not just adapt and make the best out of the situation? It makes no sense to try to strive for the best when you're shit. Mm. Like, I think you yeah. had a you, you had a podcast that I listened to with the guy who got uh, Lyme's disease. Oh, Kirk Harworth, yeah. Yeah, so putting him to the standard of, uh, like, the best, most endurable chef in the world would make no sense because at some point in his life, he was super shit. So, like, when he was lying in bed for, I think, months, why would you put him to the standards of, like, what the best chef in the world could be? you have to shift your standards to what's actually actually attainable at that moment it makes no sense performance wise mental health wise longevity wise sustainability wise like it makes no sense in any way
1: i think that's a really good point and it's something that i've been meaning to put in place for a while which is like um it's not a named it's an anonymous guide so that when you clock in in the mornings you put a token in a box um mm-hmm. and then at some stage during that shift, a manager will come, they'll count out how many tokens are in that box. And the tokens will relate to I'm feeling like a, you know, super superman today, or, you know, I'm feeling not great, I'm really in the weeds, or I'm really, really struggling today. And what that does is it allows the other members of the team to see uh without naming any names, it allows them to see the clarity of sight who that three of the members of the 10 team aren't doing well today and they're really struggling and it allows you to adapt your behaviors yeah. and mod because you don't know who it could be. But it'd be it'd be really nice as well to like look use the classifications that you've given and it's like, well actually if someone is really struggling today as a team, what can we do? What sort of three top three things can we do to modify our behaviors and our communication to be able to make that make this a more pleas- pleasant day or yeah. you know to at least make it easier on that individual.
0: Yeah. And if you already have those uh, like protocols established, then you don't have to think about things on the spot because you already know your limitations and your capabilities. And you, you know that at this time, we always have five minutes because it's always dead at this time. So at this time, he will be able to have a break. And then he knows that as well. Okay. If I use power through two hours, I will get a small break. Awesome. Instead of fuck, how are we going to do? He sucks today. We don't have the protocols in place. Nobody knows how to do his thing. We don't even know if we're going to get a break today. And like having that mindset, then you're going to be fucked. But if you have the protocols, you don't have to think about it. It will probably also be better for performance and all the other factors which we talked about. And I think uh, touching upon your idea, it's great. To have sort of that token system because then you could track week to week, like okay, this week we were 80 tokens, last or this week we're last week we were 80 tokens, this week we're 70, next week maybe 60, okay, fuck, we're going downwards. What are we doing? And being able to track how everybody is feeling, because then you could see with the mental health and maybe performance as well, because I think mental health. At some point, it has a correlation with performance. I mean, if somebody is super depressed and tired, which they are when they have bad mental health, it, it, it's just a matter of time before it affects the performance. So being able to track that, but I would also say then, as someone who has a solid ground in science, that you have to make it very clearly defined what a level one constitutes as a level two so people don't just willy nilly put in one token or two tokens or three tokens so defining and it it can just be as simple as let's say put in three tokens that means that you're filling 8 out of 10 or 8 to 10 out of 10 putting in two tokens mean that you're filling maybe 5 to 7 out of 10 and putting in one token is 1 to 4 and then you've identified it a bit. It's not perfect, but it's better than nothing. So people just don't willy-nilly put in. Because mm. feeling great, what does that mean? It's nobody knows.
1: Well, it's it's all perceptive, isn't it? It's, it's individual and unique to that individual. So, you know, it's it's about ultimately it's up to you as a, as an individual to be able to know where you are in terms of your resilience and the, and again though with mental illness and if you are you know experiencing depression or ptsd or anxiety or anything like that sometimes you don't know your ups from your downs or your ass from your elbows so <laughs> it's uh you know having been there i know that some days you, you don't even know what you know you struggle to work out what day it is or what your name is sometimes so it is difficult, but I think it's important that you know if the are on the subject of normalising this conversation and bringing awareness, and ultimately these sort of processes, whereby you can open this dialogue and that you can provide a platform where people can at least register how they're feeling, or you know, it's it's important so that others can then manage their behaviours and emotions around them in order to be able to make it a more suitable and safer working environment.
0: But I think uh, I think. A good thing to add is that as someone from psychology, self-perception is something that we struggle with a lot because everything is not as easily testable, like maybe chemistry where you can just do an experiment and then something happens and you know that X caused Y. So we use a lot of self-reports, but making those self-reports as good as possible, so not just like... I'm studying fear at the moment, so not just asking, are you scared? Yes. Okay, yeah, then that person was scared. Try to make it like finding variables, which I expect fear to uh, increase. So uh, did you feel like you had a high heart rate? Did you feel nervous? You can measure skin resistance, like getting goosebumps and stuff like that. So in the case of um, the levels... Maybe having, okay, how, how tired are you on a scale of one to 10, maybe a heart rate? If you have that possibility, maybe how frustrated are you on a scale of one to 10? How motivated are you today? How energetic are you today? And then you just average it out and then you can get, yeah, okay, let's say you have five or six factors, then you have a more reliable and probably a more valid account of what level you are Then just okay how are you feeling today because that that's too little in itself but if you have a lot of factors i'm not saying have a hundred factors but having five is probably better than one and it must be mm. factors that impact performance so trying to or i would work with the kitchen to try to find which factors do we think impact performance the most like frustration is probably a super big one focus so i'm feeling super tired and like three out of 10 to focus right now okay then that impacts performance a lot and if you have free on everybody or every one of those factors then you're probably at the level one but if uh, focus is a five and then uh, let's say frustration is a five but motivation is 10 and like you're feeling 10 out of 10 in toughness then you're probably more in line to a level three or a level two so sort of seeing it more holistically instead of just one factor.
1: That's a good point. Perhaps one we one we should definitely uh, definitely explore. Yeah. My brain's working overtime now. But John, <laughs> good. John, I I could talk to you for for ages, and and I think that we do need to continue this conversation. But I think that uh, sort of round this off to to a neat neat close. Is there any particular? Thought or a piece of advice that you'd like to leave with the listeners that they can take
0: on for their for their next day yeah hire me for performance no but uh <laughs> it is to it is like i've spoken about trying to identify your goals and your staff goals and your establishment's goals and seeing if they're in line okay management want us to become a michelin star restaurant i want us to try to push the culinary world and create new things. But my staff, they just want to cook good meals or get money. Okay, then you have three different goals and none of them are in line. So trying to see that everybody has the same vision, the same goals, or at least close to the same goals. And then once you know where you want to go, it's much easier to go there. And like if, if someone would tell me, okay, you should walk to Portugal, I would probably take a lot of bad ways and I would probably go like not optimally, but I would at least know where to aim at and I would get there, I mean, sometime. But if someone would just say, go, where the fuck should I go? How long should I go? Like, I don't I don't have nothing, but if you at least have a goal in line, it's much easier to work from there than to work from nothing. Good point. And then also, I would like to say that... Uh, from listening to your podcasts and really understanding the problem i've gotten a lot of respect for how big this mental issue is in this field and i got a sense of how big an issue this is and how much help is needed and the work that you've done which or with decreasing the stigma has inspired me so i would like to collaborate with you and maybe have like a Raffle or a lottery thing. That's amazing. Thank you. Yeah, I yeah, think I think that probably awesome. we can work in collaboration because I have some ideas, and I think that you know which issues are more pressing than I do. So I think we can come up with some good, good terms together.
1: Perfect. Yes, one hundred percent. And um, and John, for for people to find you, where where would they find
0: you? Yeah, they can find me at Ascension. OFCL so short for official.com. So AscensionOFCL.com. dot com.
1: Perfect. And you'll also be able to find the report that we've uh, we've talked about in terms of autonomy as well and autonomy de- deficits. Um and it's quite it's quite interesting. I think um i'm loving i've got a load of these clinical studies at the moment about occupational stress and all other things and you know whilst it's all, all scientific jargon to a certain degree in references it's um i think once you can start to get used to reading them they're very informative and very eye-opening so um
0: yeah, yeah, but don't do it too much. I know I have my master's thesis right now, and I think my reference list is currently like six pages or something. So <laughs> you get a bit fucked when you <laughs> read so many studies. So don't take on too much, guys.
1: No, not at all. Well, thank you, George. Thank you ever so much. I found this incredibly insightful, very useful, and hopefully a lot of our listeners have as well. And I'll uh, we'll speak to you very shortly, sir. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Thanks for that. Speak Bye, soon. guys. I I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Burnt Chef Journal. We'll be back again next week with another episode. But in the meantime, if you wanted to learn more about The Burnt Chef Project, please head over to our website www.theburntchefproject.com where we have a range of merchandise which is designed to create awareness. We offer training modules. We also provide support services. And also you'll find access to our online app, which is free to use internationally. Do feel free to give us a follow and a like on social media and we'll look forward to seeing you again next week.